Good morning, my brothers and sisters. So good to see you guys. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8, because that's where the Lord's message is going to be coming from. Uh, Of course, before we begin, though, I need prayer. We need prayer. The message today, it's going to be a heavy one, but it's going to be so awesome and beautiful and pointing to Christ the whole way. So let's just take a moment to go to our Father in heaven. Let's pray. Let's ask him to just help us to receive his message this morning. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for another glorious day in which we could wake up, which we have this relationship with you, which we could point and look to you and worship you, all because of the blood of Jesus, all because of what he did on the cross, your only son and our Savior. And Father, I pray today, please hide me behind the cross and let Jesus shine through in every moment, in every facet. Point to him. And please, Holy Spirit, come fill this place. Open everyone's hearts, their ears, their minds to receive the message that you have prepared for them. God, we need you. And we need the healing power of Jesus every single day and the gospel message every day. And it's these things that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, as I normally do, when I was praying to God asking about what should the message be today, I found him pointing me towards the Gospel of Luke. And as I began my study, I got to see exactly why. I'm going to be honest, my heart has been really heavy lately and convicted for a number of reasons. And I'm going to admit that this has been the first week in my life, even in ministry, where I actually intentionally fasted, where I actually sat there and said, I'm going to step up for Lent and I'm going to give up some meals. And the reason why I was convicted is because I hated up the, the idea of just giving up food, period. Heck, I'm going to admit it, it inconvenienced me. But as you see, as I fasted this week, the Lord did something truly amazing. For I recently just started reading a book entitled, If I Die, Risking Life to Live for Jesus. Now, this book has numerous true accounts of missionaries on the front lines literally giving their lives for Christ. They're being beaten, tortured, and everything in between. But it also depicts how these missionaries, they're starving to death. They have no clue when their next meal is coming. Yet they do it gladly because they know that they serve the Most High God. They serve Jesus Christ, their Savior, our Savior. And they know it's Him alone who sustains them. And you see, this convicted me because I knew here I am fasting and complaining, thinking about, man, being hungry sucks. Yet I knew if I wanted food any time, I could have it because God has blessed me so much to be able to do so. Yet these brave missionaries and local pastors in these hostile countries never know when their next meal is coming, or rather if their life may end shortly. And again, they trust everything in Jesus. And you see, the Lord revealed to me that it was a privilege for once, even if just for a short while, to experience what they experience, to experience what it means to truly turn to God, to trust in Him alone, and for Him to sustain me. Now, of course, we all know God has a sense of humor, right? And the sense of humor is that today, our fast is supposed to end for food. And we celebrate together with a feast. What I had no idea of, though, is that the feast actually starts right now in His Word. It starts in His Gospel. Because the truth is, when you dive into this text that we're going to cover, and when you allow the Lord to open your heart, there's so much more to feast on. There's so much more meat on the bone. So without any further ado, let's dive into the text by first discussing what the background of Luke actually is. 
You see, the Gospel of Luke, as the name indicates, was written by the disciple Luke. And it was around the early 60s AD that he wrote this Gospel. Now, Luke was a physician, and he was a close companion of the Apostle Paul, and he was moved by the Lord to write this text as a means to help his readers understand what the Gospel is, to chronologically go through the life of Jesus Christ. Now, Luke's audience would have been both Jews and Gentiles alike, so really the Gospel was meant for everybody. With this knowledge, we can move to our sermon text today of Luke chapter 8, and it's going to be verses 40 through 56. For it's here now that we catch up with Jesus, who's well into his ministry. He's just returned, as a matter of fact, from the Jewish region around the Sea of Galilee. In fact, he returned from being among the Gentile region of the Sea of Galilee after having just performed a miracle by healing a man who was possessed by many demons. And this sets us up to read the first portion of the text, so please, open up your Bibles. I don't care how you do it, if they're phone, I don't care if it's paper, please follow along. It's going to be verses 40 through 48 that we're going to read through together. Here we go. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all of her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. For I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman come and saw she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him and declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. So here we see right off the bat that Jesus, he's returning, and large crowds are welcoming him. But these crowds, they're, they're swarming Jesus. And then there's this important man named Jairus, right? And he breaks through the crowds, and he falls right before Jesus' feet. Now, Jairus, he was the ruler of a local synagogue, or better put, the place of worship the Jews would go. That's where they would gather. And that means he would have been responsible for arranging the religious services to include the readings and so forth, very much like a pastor of sorts. Here, however, we see that this important man is falling in desperation before Jesus, He's imploring him to save his little girl, his only child. Make no mistake, though, because Jairus is probably reaching out to Jesus based on reports of what he's heard about him doing, all the miracles he's performing in that region. Now, whether he had a true faith at this point or not, that's hard to discern. It really is. But this we know. He was still smart enough to go to Christ. And so what does Jesus do in this situation? He's filled with passion in grace, and he agrees to follow Jairus back to his house to save his little girl. On the way, though, Jesus is still being swamped by these insane crowds, and I make no mistake here, don't think that these are ordinary crowds. These are extraordinary crowds. In fact, in verse 42, we read in the English that the people pressed around him, right? But the truth is, the original Greek language helps paint the picture just a little bit better. But you see, the original Greek language, the term translated for pressed around, is supenigo, supenigo. And what that means 
is, yeah, you can press around people, but it also means to press around them to the point they can barely breathe. That was the crowd he was dealing with. And I want you to think about that for a second. To be crowded around to the point you can barely breathe. Let me ask you, how many of you are claustrophobic or like massive crowds? Anybody? Not seeing many hands out there. How many of you enjoy the long wait at an amusement park for a roller coaster? How about Walmart? How many of you love going through the checkout lines there, getting bumped and your personal space invaded? Again, there's no hands. I'm surprised. All right, come on a minute. Some of you, you looked at COVID as a blessing in many ways because you didn't have to deal with your personal space being invaded. But now that things are kind of back to normal, you're stuck with it again. Here, however, Jesus is getting crowded so badly, he can barely move. He can barely breathe. But even with all these people touching him, Jesus doesn't become faced. The text doesn't tell us that he, he stopped and looked around these people and said, give me some space, back up. No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't rebuke anybody. He just keeps on moving forward. But as this commotion is all taking place and Jesus is on the way to Jairus' house, our story takes a sudden shift and our attention is brought forth to someone else in need, someone else who is badly hurting. But you see, in verse 43, we find a woman who seeks out Jesus in desperation as she's been dealing with a blood discharge for 12 years. In fact, our text informs us that she's been trying to go to physicians and doctors and nothing. There's absolutely nothing. There's no relief. There's no healing. Moreover, she spent everything she has on the best that the world has to offer her, and the world could not heal her. So we see that she turns to Jesus, no doubt hearing about this famous man who's been healing people in ways that only God can, and she decides to put her faith in him. Now, you may ask, how do we know that she places her faith in Jesus? Well, we go to the Gospel of Mark's account in chapter 5, in verses 27 and 28, and we read that the woman heard these reports about Jesus, and she even said to herself, if I even touch his garments, I will be made well. Make no mistake, if we look at that from today's standards, most would sound like, hey, that's a weak faith. I mean, if I'm honest, when I read it a couple times, when I was studying this passage, I sat there and said, man, I thought this woman was just trying to get something from Christ. She's only going to him based off of these rumors, not because she actually wants to follow him. But boy, was I wrong. But you see, what appears on the surface to be the simplistic faith actually turns out to be something so much more. And that is, if we really sharpen our focus on what this woman was going through by having this blood discharge, and what she was doing by essentially going to Jesus in a crowd, our eyes are going to be opened up massively. But to do this, though, we need to remember that for the Jewish people to be in the presence of God and in fellowship with just one another, they had to be clean per the Levitical laws. In other words, you couldn't just do whatever you wanted and be in the presence of God. You had to be clean. You had to be holy. You had to be righteous. And of course, naturally, the problem was, how do you take a sinful people and make them righteous and holy enough to be in a loving but a just God's presence? So to resolve the dilemma before Jesus came, the Lord set forth these Levitical laws so he could be with his people. So to help us, we're going to turn to Leviticus chapter 15. So open your Bibles, turn to Leviticus chapter 15, verses 25 through 31, and we're going to see what it says a person must go through in order to be considered clean, especially as it relates to a blood discharge. 
If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge she shall continue in uncleanliness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge, shall be to her as the bed of her impurity. And everything on which she sits shall be unclean, and is in the uncleanliness of her menstrual impurity. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean, and shall wash his clothes, and bathe himself in water, and be unclean until the evening. But if she is cleansed of her discharge, she shall count for herself seven days, and after that she shall be clean." And on the eighth day, she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons and bring them to the priest to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the priest shall use one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her before the Lord for her unclean discharge. Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanliness, lest they die in their uncleanliness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. So there we have it. Per the Levitical laws, a woman who had a discharge beyond her normal monthly period was considered unclean. And that ultimately means that anything or anyone who touched this woman while she had this discharge was also considered unclean and could no longer be in the presence of God. Now, I don't want you to mistake this as God being mean. Rather, God was being amazing and gracious and merciful, as it's key to remember God is so holy and righteous that he cannot stand the sight of sin or depravity. Rather, if someone is deprived, unclean, or sinful before God, what do we see in the Bible that happens to them? We saw when the Levites accidentally touched the Ark of the Covenant. They died. You can't do that with God. So what does God do? Does he just abandon his people? No. He gives them the laws to ensure they are clean and can be in his presence. Or in other words, he gives them a path to still come to him. And that's grace and mercy, my friends. He tells his people the process for becoming clean again by being purified in offering a sacrifice so the priest, or though they could go to the priest and still fellowship amongst God and each other. And the whole reason I wanted us to do that homework, the whole reason I wanted us to get in the text to see that is with this understanding, we begin to realize something insanely difficult has happened for this woman as she has been considered unclean for 12 full years. Let's put that into perspective now. That means for 12 full years, other than desperately seeking doctors and physicians, no one could really be around this woman. No one could touch this woman. Heck, no one could even touch the things this woman has touched. This means there wasn't any housewarming parties. There was no hangouts. There was nothing. Not even in a loving embrace from family and friends. Rather, her family and friends would have avoided her and told others to do the same. And for our children here today, I want you to think about it like this. Not even her mom or dad, her brother or her sister could hug or embrace her. They couldn't come near her, otherwise they would be considered unclean just as well. Let's face it, guys, this woman was blacklisted. And at this rate, I don't know what could be worse because she's living in a literal prison, being able to see people all while being isolated from them at the same point in time. And the toughest thing I've ever faced in my life is when I was deployed. You're away from family, you're away from friends, and boy, that sucks, but I'm going to be honest. If I was really hurting, I had people around me that could embrace me and tell me it's going to be all right. She really didn't have that here. And I think it's critical we understand this and have that perspective, because now we can really ask the question, what type of faith did this woman have? I mean, yes, we know she's in desperation, right? And she's come to understand, or we've come to understand, why this woman is so desperate and why she's even trying to go to Jesus. 
Now we know why she's trying to come to him in secret. Think about it. If the people found out she was in the crowd, that would have made everybody unclean. And no doubt that crowd would have turned on her and become an angry mob and wanted to kill her. Now let's go one step further and understand this woman was trying to go in the very presence of God himself, knowing that in the past, what has happened to everybody else? Certain death. But even amidst all of this, she still, says, she still has such a faith that she seeks out Jesus, knowing what could happen. And my brothers and sisters, that's no mere simplistic or ordinary faith. That's a bold faith. And that's a faith that's willing to turn and place everything that you have in trusting and giving your life to God. And what happened to this woman when she reached out to Jesus with this faith? Verse 44 states, she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately the discharge of blood ceased. She didn't even get a full hand on him. She barely got the fringe of his garments, and she was healed. And of course, as if that isn't amazing enough, we then get to see Jesus' reaction to all of this. And as we do, it's important to remember that as the woman touched Jesus, Jesus was being swamped by crowds. They're bumping into him left and right. Yet of all the people who are constantly bumping into him, Jesus doesn't blink an eye until this woman touches him. Because when this woman touches Jesus, he immediately turns around to see who it was because he knows that power has gone out from him. Let me word it a different way. Let me see if this helps to clarify. Jesus is turning around to actually look for the person who came to him with faith, the one who placed their trust and, again, their life in his hands. And I want you to watch this, and it's important, watch this now. When Jesus turns around looking for this person, it's not because he doesn't know. Of course he knows. He's Jesus. He's the Son of God. Rather, he's doing this for a much bigger reason. For you see, here we have this massive crowd all up in Jesus' personal space. And to those around him, just asking the question of who touched him, that seems ludicrous. Even Peter remarks, as we see in here, and I'm going to paraphrase it, dude, who hasn't touched you? Come on. But Jesus presses the question further on purpose to have this woman come forth, as our text states. And when she realizes she wasn't hidden anymore, she came trembling and falling before Jesus with everybody watching. And can you imagine what must have been going through her mind at that moment in time? For me, I'd have been scared like no tomorrow. Because I know the moment I admit I was unclean amidst this crowd and God himself, I'm going to die. It's over. I would have been scared because now I have to stand by my faith amongst potential persecution. But what does this woman do? She admits her faith in Jesus. And let me ask you this question. How many of us would be willing to do the same in that moment? How many of you would be willing to be called out in public knowing how you could face certain persecution that could cost you your life and would still have the faith to stand firm in God? Because that's what this woman just did. And you know why it's important to recognize the boldness of faith that this woman had? And it is. The truth is the story isn't about this woman. It's about Jesus Christ. For you see, what Jesus did here was amazing for a number of things. First, he showed his deity in that the unclean, the fallen, and the sinful things of this world, they don't make him unclean. Remember, she touched him. He didn't become unclean. He made her clean. Second, he fully restored this woman. Look again to verse 48. 
Because Jesus states, daughter, your faith has made you well, go in peace. And that means this woman who couldn't be in the presence of God before, or even around others, and who tries to come to Jesus in secret, is now restored before God in public. This woman, who would have had to have been cleansed before even coming to the Levitical priest to offer a sacrifice just to be allowed in the presence of God and others, has instead gone to the ultimate priest in Jesus Christ, being fully healed. Jesus knew that this woman was struggling. He knew she was desperate. And through this desperation, even though this woman was barely clinging on to hope, and perhaps even better stated for this woman, barely being able to cling on to his garment, Jesus met her where she was at, and he still restored her. He didn't rebuke her. He didn't sit there and say, why didn't you come to me sooner? Or, you know what? You're going about this the wrong way. Better yet, he didn't sit there and say, I'm sorry, I'm on the way to somebody else's house. I don't have time for you. Jesus didn't do that. He took the time to meet her where she was at, and he healed her because she put her faith and her trust in him. He restored her and they did something in the Bible that we haven't seen to this point. He called her daughter. And that hasn't happened in the Gospels yet. And this is the first time we see it. And through this same amazing moment, Jesus also lets her know it wasn't the fact that she touched him that made her well. Rather, it was her faith in him that made her well. And so with this, we get to our first main point. And one of the things we can learn from this is, number one, don't go sneak up on Jesus. It's not going to work. He's always going to know if you're coming up on him, okay? But seriously, I think if you're taking notes, we can see that our first main point is that true healing comes from faith in Jesus Christ. Again, true healing comes from faith in Jesus Christ. Now think about it. This woman suffered greatly. But through that suffering, she was actually drawn closer to Jesus Christ, and she received true healing. Let me ask you, what good would it have been for her to have been healed by these other doctors and worldly physicians? Great, your body's healed, right? But if you never go to Christ and put your faith in him, you're still heading towards an eternal death apart from him. It had done nothing. For the children in our church, I want you to think of it like this. Let's say you're playing outside or maybe in the house, right? And while you were playing, you got a little bit too rough. And let's say that you broke something that was very special to your mom or your dad. Now, maybe it was a vase, maybe you dented the car, whatever it may be. And so you try and stay out of trouble by making up a story of how the really special item got broken, like you blamed it on the cat or dog, right? And for at least a little bit, your parents, they believe you. And you're spared from getting in trouble and all seems well, right? But then eventually your mom and dad find out, because they always do, and now you're in even bigger trouble than you were before. But even though you get in trouble, your parents remind you and they teach you, don't hide from us, but rather come to us so we can truly heal the situation, so we can truly help you. And so in this story, likewise, Jesus wants us to come to him with our pain so he can truly heal us. And so with these illustrations, I think we're good to go ahead and move forward in our story. And let's finish it up and see what happens to Jairus now. Let's read verses 49 through 56. So again, Luke 8, 49 through 56. While he was still speaking, 
Someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. So let's just stop right there and think about what's going through Jairus' mind at this point in time. I mean, he originally comes before Jesus. He's pleading with him to save his dying girl. Time is of the essence. And then Jesus gets sidetracked. He gets sidetracked by helping this woman in need, and now it's too late for his only child. She's gone. Can you begin to fathom what he must have felt at that moment? Or could you imagine if your son or daughter died? He must have had so much pain in that moment. And I have no doubt that he began to, to think, if Jesus could have just stopped or just kept moving forward and ignored this woman, if he could have gotten to the house sooner, everything would have been fine. But now it's over. And with this swirl of emotions going on, what does Jesus tell Jairus to do? He tells him, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. Now think about that for a second. You just lost your child, your only child, and what does Jesus state? Just believe. And talk about the definition of having to have faith in the midst of the harshest trials and circumstances. Yet, that's what Jesus is asking him to do. For you see, what he's really trying to communicate to Jairus is that faith and a fear of the world, they don't mix together. Fear will tear you apart. It's going to make you question everything. It's going to make you try and work out things in your head, and it takes your eyes off of Christ. But faith has the opposite reaction when placed in Jesus Christ. It provides you with a hope. It provides you with an assurance of salvation. And so with this, we need to ask ourselves these hard-hitting truths. Do you say that you believe in Jesus while also having a fear of this world? Let me ask it this way. Could you believe in him when everything seems like it's falling apart and trust him to put it back together as he sees fit? Could you believe in him when your world is turned upside down in the ugliest fashion possible and it seems like all hope is lost? And to our children, let me ask you, when things are rough at school, or at home and it seems like your faith is being persecuted, or you're asked to do something you know God doesn't approve of, are you willing to take a stand and still be strong? Are you still willing to look to Christ? Because the truth is, that's what the Lord is asking of us today, to stay strong in our faith and looking to Him, to keep our eyes fixated on Him. And now when we look back to Jarius in our story, we see that seems like an impossible task and question to bear. But Jesus, notice, look at the actual way He words this. He doesn't leave him out to dry. Rather, if we look again, we're going to see he provides hope even in the way that he calls on Jairus to believe. Seriously, look again and see that Jesus states, only believe and she will be well. He doesn't sit there and word it is, only believe and I'm going to bring her back to life. No, rather he states, she will be well. For you see, where we, in this human capacity, see death and destruction, God sees beauty and regeneration. 
Where we see the impossible, God knows that it is possible. And so with this, we see that Jairus takes the step in faith by having Jesus and his disciples come to his house. And as soon as they arrive there at the house, what happens? We see people mourning and crying. But I don't want you to mistake this, because when we think of mourning or crying in America, we think of a funeral, right? People are sad. But in the Jewish culture, that was actually a profession. Seriously, people got hired to be mourners outside. In fact, when I was doing the study on this, one of the commentators remarked, one Jewish rabbi actually sat there and said, hey, even the poorest person should have one mourner and a flute player. These people were seriously hired. And so we get to see that as they're outside this important man, Jarius's house, there was probably multiple of these mourners. And they weren't mourning because they were sad. They were mourning because that was their job. And so what does Jesus do when he sees this? He tells them there's no need to cry. This girl is okay. She's sleeping. And sadly, what do these mourners do? They laugh at him. Their hearts and faith towards Jesus are so cold that they are certain this girl is dead. And there's nothing anyone nor anyone can do about it. But Jesus will have nothing to do with these folks. Heck, he doesn't even want them near Jairus to discourage him or his wife in their faith. Rather, he keeps them away from them by allowing only him, Jairus, his wife, and his three closest disciples into the room, Peter, James, and John. And then he does what he does best. He takes the little girl by the hand and tells her, arise, and he brings her to life. And do you know why he can do that? Because he's the Son of God. In fact, what we see here is a reminder, and it's a direct callback to the Apostle Paul's words in Romans chapter 4, verse 17, in which he states, God gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. And all I can say is amen and amen. So with Jairus' little girl, his only child now brought back to life, we now get to the second main point of the story. So if you're taking notes, the second main point that I want you to get is God is with us when we look to him in the midst of our trials. Again, God is with us when we look to him in the midst of our trials. And we know that this is true because in Jairus' moment of crisis, in his worst nightmare scenario, Jesus was right there beside him every single step of the way. That all he needed to do was put his faith in Christ and Jesus was with him. He didn't need to put his faith into the world because the world couldn't heal what he needed. Only Jesus Christ could do that. And we even see Jesus prompt Jairus and his wife at the end of the story not to tell anybody what happened, so instead of dealing with all these people that have had their hearts hardened against Christ, then instead focus on their faith, on their daughter. And with this, we can also begin to draw our application from this entire passage, as it's an amazing picture of the entire gospel. Seriously, let's recap every element of this story as it points straight to the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember, when we started today, we highlighted the fact that there was a man named Jairus who was trying to save his only child. And then the story suddenly shifted to a desperate woman in need who has tried everything to be healed by this world, only to be left for naught until she finally places her faith in Jesus. And the truth is that whether we like it or not, we're just like this woman. For we, like the woman, are also suffering. We suffer from our sinful nature and are not in a right standing with God. But just like this woman, when you reach out to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord, as your Savior, and you place your faith, 
your trust and your life in his hands, you too are healed. You too are restored in a rightful relationship with God. You too receive his power from the cross as he transfers his righteousness to you, making you whole again, making us whole again. And so let me ask you, have you truly placed your faith in Christ? Have you received the healing power that can only come from our Lord Jesus? If not, let me encourage you. For just like this story, the Lord knows the journey can be hard and trying. It can be hard and trying just like it was for Jairus, who was probably facing the biggest trial and test in his life. And yet, what did we see? Jesus was with him every single step of the way and met his needs in the midst of this trial. And how did he do that? He raised his only child back to life. And he did all of that while knowing that as he was saving this one man's only child, he was soon going to go to the cross to lose his life as the only Son of God. He brought salvation and healing to all who would and will believe in him at the cross of Calvary. And my brothers and sisters, if that's not the ultimate act of grace and mercy, I don't know what is. So if you're taking notes, the main application and the main point I want you to see here is put your faith in Jesus who alone heals us by taking upon our sin and shame. Again, put your faith in Jesus, who alone heals us by taking upon our sin, our shame. And you know, as we we get ready to conclude and get ready to turn to the table, the truth is we can keep going on with this story. There were so many different, so many different uh, uh, points to pull from it. So many different healing aspects of this that pointed to the healing gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, I think that's why back in the day for the Apostle Paul, he could easily preach for days on end. But you know, no matter what, and no matter how long the Apostle Paul preached, the ending message was always the same. Turn to Christ. Grow in Christ. And for us, don't just store up what you've learned. Don't look at these points as, oh, that was something cool, or I learned something new. No, no. Stay in the word, grow in the word, turn and share the healing gospel of Jesus Christ with everybody that you can. And so with that, let's take some time now to go to the Lord in prayer, thanking him for his grace and his mercy and sending his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to heal us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you. Father, it's, it's so easy to look at the brokenness of this world, of all that goes around us. But Father, you call us in your word to turn and put our eyes and fixate them on Jesus, our Savior. For he is the only one who can heal us. He's the ultimate physician. He's the ultimate high priest. And you have assured us through your word that he is with us every single step of the way. And God, thank you for this, that we have this assurance. Thank you for Jesus And God, I just pray that this message wouldn't be just a message, but it would be much more than that, that it would be the words that your body, that your church needs to hear, that would help them to just stay focused on Jesus and help us point one another towards Christ who heals us. God, we love you and we praise you. And it's all for the glory and power of Jesus, that we pray these things. Amen.